0: When Mike asked me to share, I was a bit reluctant. Um, I don't love public speaking, and I didn't really feel like I had anything to say, um, nor did I feel qualified to just make something up. Uh, But I do find that that's kind of how Jesus likes to work. He likes to use the unqualified so that he can be um, shown for his glory. Um, And he is faithful to give us words when we need them, and I was inspired for this message by Solo, my, my wonderful hype man here, um, Solo inspired me back in May when he gave a message on 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7. And that says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. And during that message, it challenged me on a personal level, and I found myself at various moments just brought to tears. And I cry a lot at church, so that wasn't exactly surprising, but what was more surprising was those tears were married to this sense of conviction in my heart. And so um, I, in true fashion of myself, I wanted to understand why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And so I started to check my heart and to really question, you know, why was I feeling this sense of conviction related to my faith, because up until that point, I'm going to be honest, I was feeling pretty good. (laughs) If you looked at the faith scale, I was like, yeah, I clock in around to like eight or nine. Like, I'm doing all right in my walk. Like, I don't don't see anything too glaring. Um, But God is so good to reveal ourselves to ourselves. (laughs) And I was able to see that there were things in my heart, that there were hopes and desires that I had relegated to a shelf of things not meant for me Not because God had changed my heart or the things that I want, but because I was resigned to low expectations so that I wasn't disappointed when God didn't show up. And as a wise scholar, John Macapote once told me, resignation is not the same thing as faith. So this message is one that I needed to preach to myself, so I thank you in advance for your attention and in indulging me today, and I often laugh at God's timing because tomorrow is my birthday, and <laughs> and that was one reason why I didn't want to do it, TBH. I was like, it's my birthday weekend. I don't want to being nervous about church, Um, but then I felt God being like, no, that's why you have to talk at church on Sunday, and that's because the things that he was teaching me and trying to help me learn were things that have allowed me to attempt to age gracefully, which is something that I've struggled to do over the last couple of years. And some of you might be too young to understand this yet, but nothing tests your faith quite like aging. And if anybody in this room has felt that, I would love to hear an amen. Um, amen. Thank you, Salo. <laughs> when I was young, I felt the world was full of possibilities, anything could happen. It was my oyster for me to just, you know, soak up. But as I've gotten older and I've worked in a hospital, I recognize the limits of humanity and I recognize the limits of possibilities at times. And there are things in my life um, that I realize are going to require an act of God to change or an act of God to make things happen. And I find birthdays are a funny thing there are different kinds of birthday people. There are people who don't just have a birthday, but a birth month. Yes. Uh, there are people who don't want anyone to know that it's their birthday. And then there are people like myself who like the attention, but don't like asking for it. So instead, we talked the Sunday before, and I look forward to all of your text messages tomorrow, wishing me a happy birthday. My number is 555, just kidding. You... <laughs> Anybody in like the 90s knows that joke, because the phone numbers were always 555, right? <laughs> But regardless of where you land on the spectrum, I think around birthdays, there's a proclivity to reflect. And much like New Year's Eve, you start to take assessment of where you're at. And recently I crunched some numbers and I looked at my stats next to the normative data of the world. And at 36, I'm not looking too hot. I'm not married, I don't have kids. I don't live on my own. I don't own a home. I don't make a lot of money. And on top of that, I'm a woman. So the subtext of our culture is that I'm going to depreciate as I age. So these things married together have provided many opportunities for me to test my faith and to exercise my faith. But thank you, Jesus, that this is not how God's economy works, that his value system is not like the world's value system, and he can bring meaning and purpose to anyone of any age, gender, or socioeconomic status. And even more than that, he has the capacity to do above and beyond what we can even imagine. But despite having this knowledge, there often is this vast disconnect between the head and the heart when it comes to this topic, and the idea of walking by faith seems almost impossible and so incredibly abstract. And for me, there have been times and moments in my life when I feel like God has forgotten me. And I'll look around and watch him blessing those people in my life. And I'm kind of like, hey, God, over here, that one was for me. (laughs) You missed your shot, like right here. Um, And he's not making a mistake. He's not missing his shot. He's just asking me to wait. In 2 Corinthians 4:16 through 18, Paul writes, "So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen—or sorry, the things that are unseen—are eternal." As I reflected on my own faith and pondered the meaning of walking by faith and not by sight, I became curious about why we rely so much on visual information to make us feel safe and secure. So, in true grace form, I took a deep dive into the neuroscience of seeing, and uh, what's his name? Gave me a little spoiler. Um, What's his name? Stuart. Stuart has a name. Stuart spoiled that a little bit, but um, I did look into the act of seeing and actually how it's quite an art form. Um, Being a lover of the brain, I was happy to learn that the eye is the only part of your brain that sits outside of your skull. And it's equal parts resilient and sensitive. And the more that I've learned about the eye, the more that I've become appalled by my personal hygiene. (laughs) And as a contact wearer with poor vision, I have been wildly cavalier with how sensitive the eye is. And something that made me think of why we rely so much on it is 40 to 50% of our brain mass is used for visual processing. And that's more than any other sense um, in our body. And that's for people who are obviously able seeing. If you have low to no vision, that's actually taken over by smell and hearing. But for us that can see, we use most of our brain to process visual information. And the way it works is truly fascinating. It begins with the lens reflecting light onto the retina, and the retina has two different kinds of cones, rods, um, sorry, dif- two different kinds of cells, rods and cones, again ahead of myself. Rods are used for low light and cones are used for bright light. And what these cells do is they take these light wavelengths and they turn it into chemical information. And that chemical information then runs through your optic nerve to the back of your brain in the occipital lobe, and there is where the information is interpreted and it's processed. And it's interpreted and processed through your experience. Experiences, what you've seen before, what you know, what you can comprehend. And I find that that's pretty subjective. Anybody else? <laughs> because our eyes don't see objects as they appear, but rather just on our perception, which is a best guess of what we see. And this is how people will come to develop body dysmorphia, or how you might look at a piece of art with a friend and have completely different interpretations of what it might look like. As we experience more, we can begin to predict what we will see in each circumstance, and this can cause us to almost go into autopilot. And has anyone in this room walked somewhere or driven home and not known how they got there? Yeah. (laughs) It's a little scary how sometimes we can just go completely in autopilot, and that's why you're walking on the street, and one of your friends walks down, you completely miss them, because your brain's not looking for something different. So in addition to being subjective, our vision is very limited. We are limited by the light that we can see. So there is a width of wavelengths that our eyes are capable of seeing, but there's also light that exists outside of this bandwidth. And there are moments where we can't actually see what's happening around us because we don't have the capacity to see. And as I reflected on this aspect of the natural world, I saw some interesting parallels that I thought could be applied to our spiritual walks. Um, One, that we all have a blind spot, and two, that where we set our gaze matters. The first is we all have a blind spot, and there's this portion of our eye in the center of our visual field where there's no photoreceptors. And because there's no photoreceptors, our brain can't turn that light information into chemical information. And so what we do for lack of visual is we compensate with contextual. And so our brains will use contextual information to fill in the blanks of what would likely be there. Um, but again, this is based on our own understanding. In Hebrews 11, at the beginning of the lineage of the Hall of Faith, the author writes, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I think sometimes it's so hard to walk by faith because we're not humble enough to acknowledge our blind spots. We box God into the realm of our understanding when in reality, he exists outside of time and space. In our women's study, we had a whole session where we talked about the vastness of God and just how great he is and how much more than we could comprehend. And some of the verses are Job eleven seven 7 through 9. Can you find the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? It measure, its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Psalm 119, 96. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your command is without limit. Psalm 147, five. Our Lord is great, vast in power. His understanding is infinite. In Isaiah 40, 28. Do you not know, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly grow faint and I grow weary, and there's a limit to my understanding to many things in this world but how wonderful it is that we serve a God that is not defined by the boundaries of our finite minds but operates in a realm that supersedes what we can even comprehend. Often walking by faith is scary and I want to rely on what I can see and understand because it makes me feel safe. But it's a little bit arrogant for me to think that I know more than God or that I understand more than he does in a given situation. And that thought process is totally in objection to my life motto, which is work smarter, not harder. (laughs) It is harder to rely on our own understanding because we're not capable of understanding it all. And that's why in medicine we have different disciplines because it wouldn't be possible for one person to understand all systems. And the same reason why airlines have multiple mechanics and not just one, because it would be dangerous to rely on one person to repair an entire aircraft. When I look back on all the things that God has done for me, they were all outside of my realm of understanding, and I was humbled by the way that God had moved. And when we expect to see something, our brain conserves energy by looking for what we expect, and that's often at the cost of processing other information. When I fail to acknowledge my blind spots and I expect to see God move in a way that I can understand, I often miss out on everything else he's trying to do and I behave like he's made a mistake, and really, I just haven't been paying attention to the right things, which is an excellent segue to my next point, which is where you set your gaze matters. Um, When we focus on screens or things that are right in front of us, which I think we all probably spend too much time looking at screens, we are actually straining our eye muscles, and this can contribute to myopia or nearsightedness. And one way we can offset nearsightedness is to spend time looking up, specifically at a horizon. And this helps shift our perspective and allows our eye muscles to relax. This is true for vision, and I feel like it's true for our faith as well. When we become nearsighted and focus on our problems, it strains our faith. But when we look up and see how God is moving, we begin to relax and allow God just to do his work. And I was talking with someone a little bit earlier, and I've said this a, a lot. Things are gonna happen the way they're gonna happen. I believe that. And when I go into a situation, I have to be, tell myself, like, do you wanna go into this anxiously or do you wanna go into it with peace? And I find that the more I know God, the more I surrender to him, the more peace I have because I know that he's in control of all situations. This also reminded me of something I learned when I was training to run a marathon in 2018. I am not a runner. I will never claim to be a runner. <laughs> I played soccer growing up, so I ran with a purpose, this aimless you know, straight line loop-de-loop thing for 24 miles. I don't even know what got in my mind. But uh, God is good, and he used running as a metaphor to teach me all these little life lessons that actually helped me lose my dad later that year. And one of those lessons was where your gaze matters. And in running, if you're looking at your feet, you actually disengage your glutes, and that causes you to take smaller strides. So it takes you longer to get where you're going. If you look too far up, it disengages your core, and it actually causes you to just waste energy and puts you at risk for injury, specifically to the back and the knees. But if you look a couple feet ahead of you, you keep engagement of both the glutes and the core and that allows you to be in perfect alignment in hebrews 12:2, it says looking to jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of god And it reminded me in the earlier service of this hymn, which I sang then, and I'm really hoping I don't have to sing now, but it goes, "'Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim at the light of his glory and grace.'" And I think sometimes we face crises of faith because our eyes are looking at the wrong thing. When we are focused on the things of the world, like I am around my birthday, we become self-involved and anxious for the future. But when we set our eyes on Jesus and we focus on him and what he has done for us, we shift into perfect alignment and we can run a race without wasting energy or getting injured. And finally, I'd like to tell you a tale from my puzzling. Um, this portion doesn't have so much to do with the mechanics of sight, but it was something I learned at the beginning of this year that I think can help us as we navigate our, our walk in faith. Um, this past winter, my room and I, roommates and I went full granny mode, and we took on a thousand-piece puzzle. And you might have noticed when you sat down that there was a puzzle piece. If, I thought I had enough, so you might not have one. Um, but if you want to take that out, I want you to take a look at it. And does anyone want to take a guess at what that is? Oh, you don't have enough information, huh? <laughs> Nobody wants to take a guess. Well, if you're at a loss, you're exactly where we were when we started this Van Gogh puzzle, and when we started this, we had absolutely no faith that it was going to come together. It was just piles of pieces that looked all exactly the same. Um, but after countless hours and two weeks, we finished it, and we were so proud of our accomplishment that it's now hanging in our dining room. So if you ever come over, we will make you look at it and be in awe <laughs> of our artwork. Um, but that, you know, experience taught me three lessons, and one of them is trust the puzzle maker. In life, we have faith in so many things. We trust pilots to safely get us where we're going, surgeons to cut into our bodies, and restaurants to prepare us meals that won't kill us or, at the very least, won't make us sick. But we struggle to trust God. When we began this puzzle, like I said, we had zero faith in the fact that we could complete it, but we did have faith in the fact that the company hadn't given us a lemon. We had faith that there were a thousand pieces, even if we didn't count them, that those pieces fit within one another, even if we didn't try, and that at the end of it, it was all gonna come together to produce the picture on the box. And why? Why do we trust pilots and surgeons and restaurants and manufacturers for our safety and our entertainment? Well, I think it's because we have faith in the institutions and the bodies that regulate outcomes. You know, I have faith that, you know, Delta will get in big trouble if their pilot can't fly this plane, right? Or that restaurant's going to go under if they can't serve me something that's not going to give me food poisoning. But we trust Harvard and Delta to do their due diligence, and because they've proven themselves in the past, we trust them in the future. Well, God is no different, and he has been tested and vetted, and he's been proven time and time again, and not only in our own lives, but in the lives of others and across history and time. The Bible is full of stories of God being tested and proven faithful. So where Harvard can have admission scandals and Delta can be delayed, and if anybody has traveled this summer, you know the airlines are not flawless. I've had many delays in my flights. Um... But God, God never fails. He never returns void. And so when I find myself questioning what God is doing and I get the urge to make it happen, I try to stop and remind myself to trust the puzzle maker. Because even when I can't see where the pieces fit and how it's all going to come together, he knows and he's working on my behalf. The next one is be faithful. When we began the puzzle, we couldn't see where it was going until we started laying down pieces one by one. The more pieces we laid, the better understanding we had of where we were, and we had more faith that we were going to complete it. It took coming back time and time again and laying piece after piece for us to finish it. And if we weren't faithful, it would have never happened, or it would just be sitting in our apartment, which we all have New York apartments, and there's no space for a thousand piece puzzles. (laughs) Um, And when I think about the importance of consistency, I think about building muscle and how faith is like a muscle. The more we exercise it, the stronger it gets. And anyone who has stuck to a fitness routine knows you don't change after going to the gym once. I wish it were so, but unfortunately requires a little bit more effort. Um, And it takes time and time again to go back to the gym to get the results you want, but the results are a byproduct of your faithfulness. So if you want to see your faith grow, you have to be active, and you have to put in the work. And if that feels impossible to you, I'm right there with you. It's like day-to-day, moment-to-moment, where my faith feels like it's strong. (laughs) Um, And I think that's normal. But I encourage you to start anyways. And in this book, I read Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is an amazing book if you haven't read it yet. Um, He encourages readers to start small. And so he gave the example of going to the gym, and he told the, the reader, you know, first thing, just get on the gym clothes. Even if you don't go to the gym, just put on the clothes and then go to the gym for five minutes. You don't, you're not going to work out, but just get there. Then go for 10 minutes, 15, until you hit your goal. And the hardest part for everybody is the fact that we just start, right? It's just getting there for us to be able to engage. So if you're struggling in your faith, I encourage you to start small. Start by asking God to increase your faith. And I do this um, in my prayer time in the mornings. I pray God, increase my faith so I can trust you more. Because I need that every single day because I rely a lot on my visual processing. (laughs) And I think sometimes the older I get, the more I rely on it because I think I'm getting smarter, but actually I'm probably just getting dumber. but start small with asking God to increase your faith, and then read stories and talk to others about their faith, and then start surrendering things small. And I gave this example in the first service. On my way here, I had missed the train, and the next train was 10 minutes, and I was worried I was going to be late because I had to lay out the puzzle pieces. And I started to get a little like, anxious and nervous, and God was like, Grace, your whole talk's about faith. You think I'm going to make you late? If I was gonna make you late, there's probably a purpose for that. Like, Have faith that I'm working on your behalf that I've asked you to do this today. And the last thing is, don't do it alone. There's a saying, if you wanna go fast, go alone. If you want to go farther, go together. That person has obviously never done a puzzle because I (laughs) would've never gone fast nor far if I'd done this puzzle on my own. And because I did it with my roommates, We were able to work together and to build off one another. We were able to see different perspectives, and we were able to grow together. If you want to go farther in your faith and get there faster, don't go alone. The church is here to illuminate God's glory. The work that God's doing in each one of our lives is meant to be a beacon of hope That others can look to to be encouraged by what god can and will and wants to do in our lives so if you're struggling i encourage you come to the the tuesday new night tuesday new tuesday night (laughs) um house churches you know come to the prayer nights get involved on sundays make friends while you're here and if you're nervous you can come talk to me i'm very friendly and i'm socially awkward too so we can just make it work um but i will be your friend And something I want to end on is I love art, and I find that it's a reflection of the artist. You can learn about the creator from the creation, and each piece of work reveals more and more about how they see the world. And I do love museums, but I don't often spend hours staring at paintings. Working on this puzzle gave me this new perspective and insight into Van Gogh. As I stared at piece after piece, there was a lot going on, it was a little chaotic, But ultimately, there's a cohesive vision, and I think that's how God works sometimes. Opportunities for me to exercise my faith are like tiny puzzle pieces, abstract and meaningless on their own, but once knitted together with other pieces, makes up a work of art that reveals a creator with intention. So tomorrow on my birthday, as I read your (laughs) texts, I will look to my past and I will choose to see my life and the things that challenge my faith as pieces in my puzzle that, like this Van Gogh painting, is but a portion of a greater collection. And I believe that when we can see ourselves as just a piece of a greater work that God is doing, as a church, we'll have the opportunity to encourage and champion each other on in our faiths. And as we watch the Creator at work in each of our lives, we'll begin to have a better understanding of His vision. I promise you, like it was in the Garden of Eden, the work that God is doing in your life is good. And having faith in what God is doing is hard, but having faith based on the finiteness of your own mind is so much harder. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I want to pray. Father, you are faithful, and you are good, and you are so loving, Lord Jesus. And I just thank you for the work that you're doing in each one of our lives. And I pray, um, Father, that you would increase our faith, increase our faith to help trust you more, Lord Jesus. I know that you have a good work set before each person in this room, and you brought them here for a reason. There's a purpose that they heard this message. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, encourage them to walk by faith and not by sight, which is subjective on its own and an act of faith in and of itself. So I pray, Lord, that you would just move in your power and your glory, and I pray, Lord, that we would begin to surrender each and every aspect of our lives. Thank you again for this day. Thank you for Solo. Thank you for the worship team. Thank you for Mike um, and all the people that made today happen. Be glorified in our worship now.